Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Meaning of Life and Such. I'm your host, Haya Caps, and I try to chip away at the question of who we are, why we're all here, and what it all means. If that sounds a little bit vague, then, well, you try coming up with a better description of what this is all about. Uh, Notes on a postcard, please. In any case, here's our new deep dive into life, the universe, and everything. Let's roll tape. Welcome back to another episode of The Meaning of Life and Such. Um, Today, I am joined by a unique uh, guest in that this person is probably uh, the person who has known me the third longest on this planet, (laughs) Um, my wonderful sister. So uh, I guess we'll go through the normal spiel. Uh, Wonderful sister, (laughs) what is your name? What pronouns do you use? And where in the world are you? Uh, My name is Maker. Uh, she, her, and I am in Australia, Canberra, to be exact. Which is, of course, why any listeners listening to this will have this, wait a minute, it's your sister, but she speaks with a very different accent from you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's totally what's going to happen. Yeah, that's not the first time we've got that one, hey? No, exactly. It happens all the time. It's funny. Um, I ask this question to everybody, and for you, it might actually be a particularly interesting one. Uh, So let's try this. Mega, how did we meet and what is your first memory of me? <laughs> um, well, I was born second, so I guess you met me before I met you, <laughs> consciously. Uh, but, yeah, so I met because I was born and you were already part of my family. Um, you, you didn't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> it was a fantastic family to be born into. Thank you very much. Um, my first memory of you is probably from our holiday in France when I was two and you were four. Yeah. Uh, and I got very sick. And it, it's not so much a specific memory of you being something you did or anything. It was just an awareness that you were there with me. So, yeah, I guess that's the first mm, that's memory. Yeah. And a little sad because, I mean, a more specific memory would be good. But, I mean, it's. I think that's one of the interesting things about what memory is and what memory does. Um, the other interesting piece you bring to this podcast is that as somebody who's known me uh, a long ass time, you have seen me evolve a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Including yeah. a lot of like struggling with meaning of life type stuff. Yeah. And I guess um, I, I want to know what you know about this, but actually, actually because you're in an unusual position, um, can you summarize my journey for me oh, wow. <laughs> as, okay. as seen from you? <laughs> This is only a fifty-minute podcast, right? I know. Um, yeah, this is a this. This may end up being a stupid idea, but I'm I'm just really curious because, uh, yeah. Well, you you've had a uh, an up close seat. Yeah. No, I guess um, when we were both very young, I don't think it was something that we necessarily grappled with as much. Um, I think we were both quite, you know, happily skipping along in our youth and fairly unchallenging youth other than you know bullies and and external forces like moving around and but because of the moving around we were very set on each other so we spent a lot of time together and being just the two of us which brought us very close I guess 
And then when the bullying was sort of overtaking a lot of your experiences later on, so not so very young youth, it was very hard for me to see you grapple with the world and to see you not fit in. And that, Mm -hmm. in hindsight, was partly because of where we grew up, very small town, very unused to foreigners, and because we were so different um <laughs> we were kind of never really that accepted and that that counts for both of us but for you it took a very different um journey than my, me because yours was a very physical journey so a lot of your bullying was very physical people picking on you people being very um yeah physical with you and and beating you up and things whereas for me it was a far more insidious People didn't want to be my friend. I was very lonely. Um, you were very lonely too, but I still had you. Um, so that kind of then evolved into trying to find ourselves. And I remember around when um, you were a Rus, which is a bit difficult to explain, but it's basically the um, the graduation of high school in Norway. Yeah. You were already really trying to figure out who you were separate from other people. So this was after you'd been to America for a year. You're already trying to find your feet. I remember that time with the Rus, et cetera, with the red clothing, you actually ordered a skirt for that, um, you know, uniform or whatever you want to call it. That's but right. You wanted to be so different or you were so different. You were so unique at that time and you were really battling with the, the norms and trying to push back on what was normal and regarded as cool but you also then try to still find your tribe and try to fit in and try to find people that you could gel with um amazingly when I was really struggling with finding a tribe you quite happily dragged me along to your tribe which Mm -hmm. I've always been very grateful for um you've always been very open for me to join whatever you were in on um and that that journey of self-discovery continued long after that. And I think you've always asked those difficult questions, those big philosophical philosophical questions that have never been answered because, you know, they've been asked since the memory of time. Um, what does Plato know anyway? I think I can solve this one, Maker. <laughs> Plato? <laughs> Sorry, that that that's yeah, you know, silly putty play with yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's um, I I guess for me, having that front seat to watching you grapple with life and and things has actually been quite difficult because I haven't been able to help, but it's also been very beautiful because it has been like I adore you and I I love you more than a lot of other people in the world. <laughs> Very subtle. Yeah, no. So, yeah, we had a little uh, wobble there. Megan made a joke. I was laughing hard enough that I ended up pressing the stop recording button because that was where my mouse was hovering. So, yeah, that's... uh... (laughs) My work here is done. I can go home happy now. (laughs) Absolutely. Six minutes of podcasting. Let's uh, let's call it a day. Oh, I'm more excited Um, about being funny for a change. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Um... You were talking about how it was interesting to be a kind of passenger slash observer uh, for my journey. And I 
I find that really intriguing. And maybe we should talk about that separately on a separate podcast episode a little bit later in this season. But what I would like to do is to learn more about how that impacted you. Like, I would like to think that maybe if you have a brother who's a weirdo and who is uh, glad to explore strange topics and strange universes, um, that that has some sort of an impact on you. And what does that look like? What what is that? What is that impact for you? I, I guess this answer might be a bit difficult for you, actually, because I've spent a lot of my life being worried for you, um, or caring so deeply about you, but being helpless and and struggling to know how to to actually support you in what you needed to discover in life, mm-hmm. um, especially earlier on. You know, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. You know, being young and stupid and doing stupid things, we both did that. Um, But watching you struggle with friendships and loneliness and and that kind of journey, it's you know, it's just ended up making me very worried. And later on as well, you know, with with the challenges you've gone through in life, with companies not going as well as they should have, or you know even in your personal life, you know, I've spent a lot of time worried and not necessarily having the tools to assist you other than saying, hey, I'm here if you need me, speak to me. Um, So I've tried to do that as much as possible, to be there for you if you needed someone to talk to. But, yeah, there's been a lot of worry on my side in terms of your, your... Best sister ever! (laughs) <laughs> in terms of you, your mental health, your well-being, your happiness, you know, all, all you ever want for someone that you love as deeply as I love you is happiness and at least um, contentment and joy and all those good things. And you know you can mm-hmm. never shield someone from all the bad things, but you do, you still wish them to have a good life, right? Absolutely. And I think there's something really curious there where you can't always help the people you love, right? And I am very appreciative of you like being present and being available and doing that. And I think in many ways you're you're kind of too close, right? Like the really gritty, grimy, hard shit that people go to, you don't want to sub- subject your closest loved ones to. Yeah, uh, I mean, for, for example... Sorry? I'm still not unaware of them, though, am I? Oh, absolutely. Well, and I mean, part of this is, you know, you work with a therapist, you have other, or I work with a therapist, I have other resources and stuff. And I think you and uh, our parents have actually been really good at being being the cheerleaders. You know, I recently had a, had a moment with, uh, with our parents, well, recently, uh, about a year and a half ago, I had a moment with our parents where, um, where I asked... Uh, mom, you know, what is it like to have a weirdo for a kid? (laughs) And her response was super sober. It was like, well, you've always been weird. It's just interesting what kind of weird you are this time. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, that's that. (laughs) That tracks. Well, I guess that's like when I ran away from home for the second time and came home and sort of had to face the music and my dad's response was, well, at least you're never boring. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's kind of my standard greeting to people right now, right? It's, it's like, well, it could be worse. It could be boring. Um, 
But I feel like we both have. So just to kind of summarize what you just said, you know, we are uh, two strange humans who are kind of thrown into an international life. Um, We share a whole bunch of languages, which means when we're talking together and it's not recorded, we actually usually jump between languages a lot. And it's actually going to be interesting to try and not do that for a podcast. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I feel like we have some very interesting lived shared lived experience um, that might potentially be pretty rare. Um, And my kind of, I don't know, it, it seems like the meaning of life or like, like who am I? Why am I here? What am I doing? comes up in my life again and again and again. And you've seen me kind of grapple with that in in greater or lesser degrees for for most of of my life. But how how has that shown up for you? Or have you just kind of gone like, well, I'm just going to live life and not really worry too much about uh the why of it. Uh it's yeah, that's interesting because you inviting me to be on this podcast has put me into a bit of a spin thinking about it i think i remember my oh, now we can both have existential crises at the same time <laughs> yay we've planned our craziness too. <laughs> um so i remember mum telling me that when i was six i once asked her mum why am i me and she kind of went what do you mean and i think i explained it as why do i look out of my eyes and not someone else's eyes Mm-hmm. And she was quite taken aback by that because she felt that was quite a deep question for a six-year-old to ask. And that's kind of something that I have continued to ask myself throughout life, maybe because mum has reminded me that I asked it once. But it still, it still strikes me as just the most wonderful, strange, mind-boggling thing that I am inside this body looking out and experiencing the world through my prism. Yeah. And I can never, ever, ever, how much empathy I have, no matter how much I can put myself in someone else's shoes, I can never be another human being. I will always be this human being looking out of my eyes. Mm-hmm. And I will never know whether the world is seen completely differently by someone else. And that's, I guess, with having little kids and stuff, I haven't had heaps of time to think about that lately but then so just for the listeners um can you briefly summarize your uh your your childbearing history (laughs) that's weird (laughs) i have two little tykes uh one is six one is four excellent good summary so they're moving on (laughs) (laughs) just gone through they're just now starting to become more independent uh you know they're fully sleeping through all those things so i'm getting a lot of time back for myself and for my life and hobbies and other things other than little children. Um, and I guess you asking me that question now has actually had given me the time to think about it again. And I, I'm, I'm sad to report that I don't really have an answer to you <laughs> what the actual meaning of life is, but it is, um, it can actually throw you into a bit of a tailspin when you start really feeling those the oddity of life, mm-hmm. the strangeness of us being on this planet and me being me and not someone else. And, you know, it, it, it can re- you can really go into a rabbit hole there and get a bit lost and a bit scared sometimes too. So it's almost easier when you're blissfully unaware of the 
of the fragility of life and just skipping along, right? Yeah, and I don't think, I mean, I think the meaning of life is one of those ultimate luxury things, right? It is the very peak of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, if you can't eat, you're not going to worry about the meaning of life. If you don't have anywhere, if you don't have safety, if you don't have somewhere to stay, meaning of life is unimportant, right? And it becomes important when you reach kind of the top, like the self-actualization layer where you're going, oh, you know what? All the basics are covered. Now I have the luxury of not being hungry, not being cold, not having a child shouting down my air. <laughs> I'm, in a, I'm in a world where, you know, you can reach. And that reach is actually super important, I think. Yeah, it's a real privilege, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think, I mean, you don't necessarily have to have the meaning of life. I've, the thing I have learned uh, about running this podcast and doing a lot of thinking about this is that meaning of life is kind of step three. I think step one is what is the I? Like, who are you? And we, you just touched on that. So I'm, I want to dig into that. Step two is what is my North Star? What is my goal? What is my mission? Where am I going? And then step three is kind of the meaning of life piece. It is like the, the I plus the mission, I think, is the meaning of life. And the, I think the interesting piece that happens when you think about it that way is that at that point, it becomes everybody's meaning of life is different because everybody is different and because everybody's like mission or what they want to accomplish in life is different. You know, if your mission is to raise kids, then, then you don't have to look very far for your meaning of life. Happy kids is your meaning of life, mm. right? And if you have, if your if your mission is to, I don't know, go into space. I'm just mentioning that because you know some billionaire decided to launch his house into space today. Um, then you can have that as your mission in life, and it's something you can work towards. But it's extremely different from somebody else's. And so I think mission, like the the meaning of life, isn't universal. But what is really curious is the what is the I. Like I am, I am having an increasing and growing sense of who I am, like who Haya is. Mm. And it's actually been surprisingly um, complicated to get to that. Mm. So I would like to go back because you said something along the lines of why don't I look out through somebody else's eyes? And I would like to ask you that question. Why don't you look out through somebody else's eyes? What is the thing, like what is the eye that is trapped in, in the make a skin suit that, that, yeah, what are you? Who are you? I still don't know. So I've been asking that question since I was six. So that's 32 years that I've been asking that question, right? And yep. that, I mean, that's minuscule in the, in the, in the comparison of time. But um, I still grapple with that. Like, is it a soul? Is it an ego? Is it an id? Is it an... Whatever it is, it's whatever is inside of me, whatever that was sparked that day when, you know, my existence came into being. What is existence? Do you have a felt sense of when that was? No. No. And I think theoretically it could be anywhere between conception and when you're starting to actually have an a proper consciousness, right? Mm. Because I love I love that you say that because I think that's where I landed. I think it is it, it, like the you, whatever the you is, moves into your body at some point between conception, and I think maybe two or three years old. Yeah, I feel like, and maybe maybe I'm showing my uh, anti tiny human bias here, but I feel like very young children don't 
it's not that I don't have souls, but I don't have personalities, right? They're essentially, as far as I understand, pretty much interchangeable. No. Not entirely true, right? They cry <laughs> at different times. They cry at different things. But as a mother, I wonder if that has... In, like The fact that you just said no makes me very happy because it means you have data that I don't have. Like in, you, in your own children, when do you think... Let, let's use the phrase, when do you think their soul moved in? Uh, well, I have no idea when their soul moved in. <clears throat> None. Sorry, my voice is uh, giving up on me. Um, and I don't know, like, is that is that why we can't really recount memories from a very early age? Is that because you don't have the being? And I, I don't think that's true. And there are people that actually have memories from, like, very rare people, but they have memories from being born, right? So, yeah. Um, there must be something there. But in terms of personality, I think both my children had different personalities and I didn't expect that and I was quite taken aback by that. But both of them had very different personalities from they were born. Uh, right, very- so, so when the second one came along, you were like, I've got this. And then they were like, <laughs> no, exactly. you do not. And I was very lucky that the first one was actually a laid-back baby, right? Um, so that when I thought I was doing really hard work and was really struggling with the first one I was just lucky that it wasn't the second one yet (laughs) so it's it's I don't think the personality thing like I think the soul is already in the human before they're born Mm -hmm. but your brain isn't developed to actually categorize those memories for most people and I think that's probably why you haven't got memories that early but I think, I think, I think it happens somewhere between conception and birth. Like at some point, when you go from being the fluttering cells to being a tiny human person thing, even if you're just a fetus, somewhere there, I think. When I listen to you, the way you describe the soul is very driven by memory. Like, like. Mm, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like what you're saying is that when you're able to start collecting memories, that is when you have a soul. Is that right? No, but I think that's why I originally thought between conception and two, which is very similar to how you probably yeah. described it. Um, I think it came down to not having memories and not being able to engage and not knowing what babies were like. I think now, now that I know babies, I think, I think I've changed my mind on that, and I don't think it's linked to memory. I think the soul is actually something that's there much earlier, or or, the, or whatever that is that makes you you and extends the existence of you. Yeah, I, and I think I agree. Actually, I, I went down that path as well, thinking that you are your memories. That that felt really true to me. But then, if you think about some of the illnesses people get where memory disappears, like Alzheimer's or short-term memory loss or all these kind of things. Yeah, it is extremely dehumanizing, but I don't think it's you stop being a human or you stop being a soul if you have Alzheimer's. And the thing is, it's very hard for the, for the people around you, but it's also really hard for you if you know there should be a memory there and it isn't there. So the way I've started thinking about the I or the self is that you're kind of an index. You're like the, the pointer on a mouse, right? And I'm, I'm starting to believe more and more that you are your intention. And so 
if you think of yourself as a mouse pointer or an indexer or whatever you want to call it, or a pointing finger, like you are like the you, the maker is the thing that is able to index your memories. So you're able to go back to a summer's day on a campground when a police person came along and told us that granddad had died. Mm. You know, you are able to do that. You're able to access those memories, but you're also able to not access memories, right? You know that a memory exists of uh, my mom and our mom and I meeting you coming up a road or meeting your ex-boyfriend coming up a road. We can also choose not to think about that. And I feel like that level of control, like, like, which which memories do you access versus which memories do you choose not to access that that attention and that drive i i think is very closely closely associated with the soul that memories live separately yeah although how do you explain the memory loop of of negative memories that you don't want to think about but that keep popping up and bringing back trauma and yeah, I mean souls are imperfect, right? I feel like, 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 like if I tell you n- not to think about coffee, what are you thinking about right now? Tea. Yeah. Okay. Fine. <laughs> Smart ass. <laughs> Every other listening was thinking of coffee making. You came and ruined it. <laughs> told you I was weird too. Yeah. No. You're. Yeah. Yeah. You're a good guest for this podcast. But I mean, I want to get back to that. I want to get back to like, what is the I? What is the, what makes make him make a, and, 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 you know, what, what does it feel like when you're at, you're like, have you ever experienced being at the edge of your existence? Like you were about to escape the make a skin suit? No, other than being asleep or under anesthesia, I don't think I have. And so what does that like what? Okay, so it's funny you mentioned that because I was meditating on sleep earlier today. <laughs> like what? What happens during sleep? Like what? What happens to the maker ghost that drives the maker skin suit when maker is asleep? I think maker goes back and goes over old things and tries to process them. Tries to process the things that happened during that day and also before that day that need to be made clearer or made or process or be put away. And I think make it goes in and does a bit of a tidy up of the brain mm-hmm. or ideally that's what make it does. And when you are overwhelmed and you are sleep deprived and you're under trauma, then that maker goes, I can't do this and I'm going to sit over here in the corner and I don't know where to start. I think you know, that, that cleaning process of sleep is so important to be able to cope with your next day, but also to be able to cope with your previous days and life and years, that when that breaks down or when you don't get enough sleep for various reasons, that's when mental health really gets affected because it all gets jumbled. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever... Um, gone into your like when you were a kid or gone into your house when you're an adult but gone into your room and gone I need to clean this up this is such a mess but I simply don't know where to even start and therefore I'm not going to do it because I'm so overwhelmed with the job at hand 
that I'm going to avoid it. And I, I have no that... idea what you're talking about. That never happens to me. <laughs> well, I remember mum giving me the advice about my room, very simply. You know, if you don't know where to start, just pick a corner, start in the corner and work your way out. Yeah. And that is a, you can do that in a physical room, but I don't know if you can do that in memories and thoughts and brain. And your well, little... brains are mostly circular, so they don't have corners. That's one problem. <laughs> however you conceptualize brains, right? Um, and I've been told that I'm a square, so maybe my brain is a bit square. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think the problem with that analogy is that you, it's, it's not that easy. It's not... You, when there's a jumble in your brain, you can't even really... Like in a room, you can walk in and see how bad it is. With your brain, you can't actually walk in and see how bad it is. Yeah. It's just overwhelming. It's like you're drowning. And if that, if yourself while you're asleep can't cope with the amount of cleanup that is at hand, I think that's where the real problems are happening. So I think, I think yourself or your soul or, or the eye or whatever you want to call it is still very much doing things while you're sleeping. It's not just resting your body. It's actually tidying up your brain. I completely agree. And I think the way I tend to think about it is is not as tidying, but as integration. I think it's the slightly fancier word for the same thing, where, you know, it's it's about taking the experiences you've had and trying to fit them into your life. Mm. The way I like to think of it, it is your your current perception of the world is a map, right? It's a topographical map that shows all sorts of things. And then you learn a new thing, and that new thing add something to the map. You know, maybe there was a cabin you didn't know about. Maybe there was a path you didn't know. Maybe there was, there, there's something. And so the integration piece is actually redrawing the map. And sometimes something so big happens. And movies are a great example. Like if there are movies where there's such a big plot twist at the end where you go, holy shit, I have to rewatch this movie because everything I thought was true about this film is false. Mm. And sometimes you have that in life, right? Somebody says something to you or you have a revelation where you're like, holy shit, I completely had the wrong end of the stick. I don't know how I was integrating this into my life, but it's wrong. And then you, ha- then you are facing a really big and difficult task. You now have to sit down and go, well, I have a map. I know it's wrong. How much time and effort am I willing to put into correcting this map? And I think that's one of the beautiful things about getting old. You can kind of go, you know what? I know my map is wrong, but it's close enough to what it needs to be. So you know what? Fuck it. I'm not going to worry about it. And then you choose not to integrate. And I think that is actually a very healthy thing to do. The challenge becomes when you are on a path of personal growth, or if you're on a path of learning, you end up doing a lot more integration where you go, oh, I want my map to be accurate, but goddamn, I'm going to have to do a lot of work to make that happen. Does, Does that land on you? Does that feel right? Yeah, I actually think it's a really bad thing that as as an older person, and I think you're, you're right, as you get older, you can't be bothered as much to try to change things. But I think it's actually, and I think you're entirely right, I think that's exactly why after 30, humans tend to uh, not like change. They tend to become more conservative in their thinking. They, they yeah. tend to become less agile and less impulsive and whereas 
you know, the impulsiveness can be quite detrimental to a very young person. I think it's actually a real loss when you get older that you're not as flexible and you're not as interested in trying new things. And because even when you try new things, you're never good at them, right? And then it's hard to become good at them. And and to integrate that map that you're talking about, it's actually a really big task. And for most people, looking at your life and finding that you are wrong is very confronting and not actually something they're willing to do. Oh, totally. It's agony. Yeah. So they actually then turn around and go, no, I was wrong right all along. And they dig their heels in. Um, I think I think it's very confronting to be told or to see that you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing, especially when you've been doing it for an even longer time, right? It's like being... If you're in a relationship for two months and then go, actually, no, this is not working out, That's it's painful and it's maybe not what you wanted, but after two months yep. you come and go, yeah, all right, this is this is fine to break up. But if you've been in a... Cut your losses, move along. Yeah, exactly. If you've been in a relationship for 20 years and all of a sudden you go, this is not working out, suddenly that's 20 years of your life wasted, or at least that's how you kind of frame it. It's obviously not... It's not 20 years of your life wasted because it's still learnings and it's still, oh, I hate that word. It's still things you've learned. Um, and it's, it's... Sorry, what was the word you hated? Learnings. Ah, got it. Yeah. Sorry, I work for government. We use let's, let's not Let's not noun verbs, shall we? No, I don't work for government, but I work with government a lot and they use that a lot. Um, but, yeah, I think the the... It takes real strength to recognize that something that you've been doing for a long time may need changing and to be kind enough to yourself to allow that to be part of your journey rather than to be a blip on your journey. So some some people will feel like it was a detour that was a waste, etc., etc. But to step back and go, actually, that was a long time, but look at all the things I've learned about myself, about the world, about life, about them, about, you know, whatever it is that you've learned to, to, to appreciate that for what it is and then move along and change what you need to change. That, that takes real strength. Totally. And I think for some, for some people, it's kind of like giving them a license or giving them a break and saying, you know what, you don't, you, you get to just chill out for now right? And if that thing is, you've always pruned your rose bushes one way, it is objectively the wrong way, but fuck it. You know, the worst case scenario is your roses don't come out as nice next year. But in the grand scheme of things, who gives two shits? The problem where it comes up is if you're, you're you, instead of pruning rose bushes, it's racism or it's sexism or it's any sort of one of the isms where, you know, the rest of the universe is kind of coming to some level of consensus that you know what, the ways we were doing things aren't okay. But if you have your landscape, if you have your learned experience that is, you know, uh, racist or sexist or any of those isms, the rest of the the rest of society starts pushing you. You're like, look, dude, this is not about your rose bushes. I don't give two shits about your rose bushes. I care about how you treat people. And I feel like there's an interesting difference there where for a lot of things, we can just let it slide, right? It doesn't matter that the person's landscape or their or their map is wrong. But other times, it's like, oh, mm, no, this is bad. We should collectively 
give you the help you need to help adjust your map. But then I think it's also very often not done in an understanding or supportive way. Right. So people are not necessarily telling you that you're wrong in a way that you will go, yeah, I can see that now. I'm happy to change my ways. People can be very combative and very confronting, which actually has the opposite effect where you dig in, you look for your tribe, you find your bias. Well, totally. And that's, and that's, a, normally lived ex- that's a normal lived experience to trauma and to being attacked. You know, if, if somebody says, oh, you're a flaming racist, you're going to have like, um, wait a minute. And either you just immediately reject it or, uh, which some people are willing to do, you spend some time thinking about it. And that time thinking about it and maybe realizing that the other person was at least partially right, that's a rough journey. And racism is an extreme example, right? But we find so many little examples of this constantly. Well, racism isn't an extreme example because... It isn't a black and white. Sorry, that was a really bad. One. It isn't a, a. It's not two ends of a spectrum, and either you are or you aren't. Like it's, you know, there's so much in between where there is a lot of ignorance, and there's. A lot, I'm sure I've, I've myself never intended to be racist, but had racist attitudes or racist things I have done, completely unattended, and I would never. I would never want to be a racist person. And once I have been confronted with those things, my initial response might have been, no, it wasn't. And then when I then have time to calm down and think about it, I go, actually, actually, that wasn't okay. And that is something I need to address, right? Yeah. And so I want to, I kind of want to put, I love this conversation and I want to put a pin on it because this is yeah. not about racism. What no. this is about is the I in this yeah. case. And so when you're saying, I realized the thing was wrong. Like I realized I said something racist. Like what is the I there? Where do you feel that I being out of integrity or being in pain? Yeah. I guess um, when you are confronted with something that goes to who you are as a being, right? Exactly. Your first response goes, that's wrong. Because you, yep. most people I assume have a very high opinion of themselves to – they most people probably think they're good people. Most people probably think the decisions they make in life are the right decisions and they make those decisions because they have the right outcome. Like I, I don't actually subscribe to the thing that pe- people are necessarily all that evil. That's also a spectrum, right? But then how do you then go from that attack on me and myself and the I to actually allow yourself a little bit of chink in that armor and go, actually, I need to evaluate their perspective. And I don't know how you do this, but when I'm in a, in a proper fight, after the fight, I always re- go through the fight again in my head, completely from my perspective. And then I do it again. And then slowly I start trying to see, not, not consciously, but I start trying to see how did I come across to them? How would it have been from their perspective? And all of a sudden, it's not a lot, no longer about my eye on my own. It's about my eye and someone else's eye. And that's where that chink happens for me, at least, where I 
view how it came across at the other end and thereby reassess my interactions and possibly my motivations and then finally I can then reshape my eye but it's a really really long process yeah sense at all well and well no it makes it makes sorry just punch my microphone that makes perfect sense and I feel like actually this is an extension of where we started this conversation which was like why don't I look out through somebody else's eyes but I feel like in in exploring empathy you are looking out through somebody else's eyes, right? You're feeling their emotions. You're you're trying to contextualize who they are and what they are. You know, sympathy is like the simple, oh, I wonder what it is like to be them. But true empathy, which, you know, true, genuinely body-felt empathy is extremely rare. And when you do that, I think you have that capacity to look through somebody else's eyes. I think it is like empathy is the one thing that confuses the shit out of me whenever I, I meditate on it. Because where I land is like, when I'm being empathetic, I am not being me. I am being them. Yeah. At the same time, I don't think you ever can look out through someone's eyes. Yeah. Which is why I really dislike when someone is telling you their real personal problems and the answer is, I know exactly how you feel. It really bugs me because no matter who that person is, and how much empathy they have, they can never know exactly how you feel because they don't know where you've been in life and they don't know every step of the way. Like I, When they don't have the context. Exactly. I mean, I have all the context in the world for you because I have been around since I was zero and you were two. So I have pretty much got the best context for you personally that you could possibly get, yet you will come to a point in your life where you go, I'm going through these things and I can empathize by going, I can see how you're feeling. I'm giving you space to to be who you are. I'm supporting you and yet still go, I don't know exactly how you feel. I can try to get you to talk about it and I can try to get you to engage with it and I can try to imagine how you feel, but I cannot know exactly how you feel ever. Yeah. Like I cannot ever actually look out through your eyes. Yeah. Well, I feel like true true empathy and true kind of feeling is is in a way like it's it's clairvoyance, right? If you have perfect empathy with something I am doing and a choice is coming up, you can probably predict what that choice is. Right? And the higher empathy ha- uh, you have, which is, you know, you can see what I see, you can feel what I feel and you have the context I have, the higher the chances that you will guess correctly about what I'm about to do next. Mm. And I know from our history that a lot of the time you might have one thought of something I'm about to do. And um, it turns out I have a capacity to surprise. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I I, I still come back to you can ever only look out through your own eyes. I can close my eyes and pretend to look out of someone else's eyes. And you can be an actor in a movie and you can pretend to be someone else, but you're never really ever someone else. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Do you feel like do you feel like that's a blessing or a curse? Like do you sometimes wish that you could be someone else or that you could experience something as somebody else? Absolutely. I especially when I'm mystified to someone's response to something, 
when I think, um, and, and I guess that's just a normal human thing, people will respond differently to something. But when I'm really mystified as to why you did the thing that you do in that context, then I'd like to be able to actually see it through your eyes, to understand your experience, to really fully be someone else, to to explain that. Because I do wonder, why would someone respond that differently to something from me? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, no, every time. And the, the thing I keep telling people, especially, I mean, I live in the US and we had a couple of hairy elections recently. And, you know, it was a uncomfortably close race between Biden and Trump. And that was after four years of Trump, right? And so I, I'm sitting there thinking, you know what? This is an uncomfortably close race, but not every single human who voted for Trump is a callous, horrible, evil human being. People act out of love. People vote because they think that that is the best option they have. They may not love Biden, but they might love the other guy more, or they might not hate, or they might hate Biden, but they hate the other guy less. And I feel like there is this thing, there's this moment in society right now, right? So Trump, Biden is one of them. Choosing whether or not to get a vaccine is another. I think I will never fully internalize why somebody chooses not to get a vaccine when it's available. You know, I, I don't think I will ever fully understand. And that has to be okay. But I do want to, I do want to try. I do want to feel like I have some sort of a sense in my body for why somebody makes choices that are completely so far removed from anything I would consider that they may as well be a different species. And as humans, it just isn't safe to be different species from each other because we're not, right? We have, you know, we have so much more in common than that we are different. And yet we're making choices that are completely incomprehensible to each other. Mm. All the while shouting at each other. A little bit of light shouting, you know, you gotta, you gotta do it. I agree. Because as I said earlier, I think everyone actually comes at these things with genuine, genuinely thinking they are a good person and that they make the right choices. I don't think most, most people, and I, I don't think all people, but I think most people genuinely live their life to the best of their abilities. Yeah. I mean, very few people woke up in the morning and go, hey, you know what? Today I'm going to be a bit of a shitbag. Right? That's not, that's not a thing. That's, I mean, and, and I'm sure some people do, so I don't want to generalize. But I think in a general thing, people are much more loving, caring, empathetic than that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. So we've explored a little bit about um, who the I is, who make is. Um, and I guess my next question is, is, you know, do you feel like you have a purpose in life? Do you have like a, a sense that if you do certain things that your life will be successful in Gosseina? Uh, <laughs> what are those in English? In quote marks. Here we go. I can't, I can't language when you're around. Um, <laughs> in, in, in quote marks, you know. Yeah. Is there a meaning? Is there a meaning to life and is there a meaning to my life? Is that what you're saying? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. So I, as I said, when you asked me to be part of this, of course, I started thinking about it. And I've, I've purposefully, there you go, I can't English either. Um, I have. English is optional. 
<laughs> decided not to listen to the podcast that you've already published because I didn't want my answers to be influenced by those, even though I'm desperately wanting to listen to them. And I will. Well, on the bright I side, on Thursday, you're able to. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think there is meaning to life. I don't think we're just spinning around on a little marble in the middle of the universe uh, completely pointlessly. I don't believe in a spiritual side of life in terms of a god or gods or religion in any way. I, I think the reason we are on this planet is to make the planet a better place. And that sounds really horribly hippie, happy, clappy um, and completely not in line with how I normally talk or live my life. But I think... I feel reason- so judged. Yeah. <laughs> well, we are very different people. You're very hippie, happy, happy and I am not. But yep. um, I think the reason we're here is to leave a legacy to improve the world behind that we've left behind. Yeah. And however that legacy comes for you, um, that can be very different. So it doesn't, it, it's not, it's not the legacy that we must all do above average things and we have to be amazing and be famous or whatever. I, I think the purpose of life is to define what that legacy is for you and then fulfill mm-hmm. that legacy. So for some people, that legacy will be to leave behind very well-functioning human beings that you have raised, right? For other people, it will be the legacy is that you've contributed to the discourse in a way that you have improved people's livelihoods and through that you've improved people's lives, so many lives that you know, people might remember you kind of thing. Yeah. Or it might be as small as I have been an active member of my local community and I have created bonds and friendships in a way that weren't there before and that is my legacy. So it doesn't have to be a big flashy legacy that is amazing, but it just has to mean something to you. Totally. And I think actually I I would push back slightly on, on, on you turning like local community into the diminutive. I think local community is one of the most important ways you can leave a legacy because, you know, it, it is where you spend most of your time. This is this is your universe. Um, and at the same time, as you were saying that, I felt a tinge of, um, of envy around you having bought yourself some more time for your legacy. You've made, you've made legacy machines. <laughs> and, you know, for, for the context, for the listener who is not aware, um, I don't have children and I just had a vasectomy. So chances of me having children reduced significantly uh, recently. I'd like to correct you. You need to start calling them legacy machines from now on. Yeah, no, totally. Legacy machines all the way. But I'm also wondering now, like now that my timeline has shrunk significantly, I feel like the importance of the work I'm doing around, you know, having a positive impact on the world feels now, it feels more urgent. Well, it needs to mean something to you, doesn't it? It needs yep. to whatever. And, and the legacy that you leave behind can change. You can either complete your legacy 
and then start off on a new one. Or you can, you know, decide that what you've started on wasn't a very good one and change your tact. Or, Mm. you know, you might accidentally become a parent when you didn't mean to be and then end up going, but I'm going to be the best goddamn parent that I could possibly be in this world and thereby change that legacy in that way, right? So Mm -hmm. you can have an accidental legacy, but I think having a legacy is what makes life meaningful. Yeah. What would it feel like to you if you were on your deathbed and you had a sense that you you didn't have a legacy to leave behind? It, I think I'd be sad about that. But I think that would also be too late. And then... <laughs> You're such a pragmatist. Well, I guess because I don't believe in an afterlife, right? If you haven't got a legacy by the time you're on your deathbed, then you can be sad all you want, but in a couple of days it's over and the sadness is gone and you're gone and it's all finished. Well, and I think this ties very closely to people's fear of death. You know, I have this conversation Mm. with lots of people and I'm not particularly scared of death because I feel like I've lived a full and rich life. Like if at the end of this call... You know, I go for a little walk and I get hit by a bus and I don't make it. Uh, that would be sad. Very. But I also feel like as I breathe my last breath, I'll be like, you know what? I put out so much wonderful out, hey? thinking. I, yeah, I put out hard, man. Um, <laughs> I put out so much information and thoughts and, and contributions that I'm like, I, I've done my piece. Hmm. And, you know, anything I do beyond this is kind of a huge bonus. And that yeah. is such a delightful place to be. And, you know, I say that now because I'm feeling well-resourced and happy. Tomorrow I will probably feel vastly inadequate. But it's such a powerful way to go about life. Well, let me circle back to your um, idea of legacy machines. Uh Uh-huh. I actually think it's exactly the opposite. So my legacy machines will have to make their own legacy machines for that legacy to continue. Uh I can't say that word anymore now because it has lost all meaning. Um, but for people like you, authors, people that create works that will be there long after they're gone, long after their technical children's children are gone, that's a far longer legacy than children and grandchildren. I suppose, but that legacy is static, right? Stuff I wrote in my first books, I, I don't, I no longer agree with. And I feel like children are living legacies. They adapt. You know, the, the the biggest hope that parents tend to have is that their kids turn out better than themselves, whatever that means. Mm. Right? And when you catch yourself in a moment of, well, because we've talked about racism, if you catch yourself in a moment of racism, you do two things. One is, oh my, I wish I hadn't said that, or oh my, I wish I hadn't done that. But you also have this quiet little hope that is like, I hope my children never do this. Because I hope they are better than me, or I hope they are more evolved than me, etc. Mm. Does that land? Does that seem real? Yeah, they're already better than me. <laughs> but then all children are, aren't they? Children have this capacity to be loving and accepting, and they might question a lot. They might go, why is it that way? Why does it work like that? But they are so flexible and accepting and understanding that if I say, oh, your Uncle Haya wears a skirt because he likes it, they go, oh, okay. And then they move on to something completely different, right? So they're already better than other people. 
Yeah. Because of that nature of their brains being so flexible and malleable. And even though they question lots, it's never judgmental questioning. Mm-hmm. So I guess, yeah, my children are better than you and me. Kids are, are, are better at this stuff because they're not weighed down by social norms in the same way mm-hmm. that we are. Or the baggage of religion or the baggage of community. Yeah. Yeah, it's well, just and, and yet I feel like, I mean, I, I am about as big of a fan of, of religion as you are, but I also have this sense that the people who draw strength from religion, that is wonderful, right? For them. Um, does that, does that land on you or are you like, no, religion is just bad? Oh, no, no, no. I think organized religion is inherently bad, uh-huh. but I think the idea of religion, of the idea of you know, do unto others that you want them to do unto you. I can't even say that right because I don't actually know what the quote is. But the idea that religion is supposed to make you a better person, right? And I've mm-hmm. I've known heaps of people that are deeply, deeply religious of various kinds, and that religion drives them to be good, decent human beings. And I go, yes, that is awesome. Religion works for you. You yeah. are a good person. A lot of the people that I'm talking about happen to be Mormon. Mormon religion seems to make people, the ones that I've met anyway, um, deeply decent people. Mm-hmm. And if that's what religion is, I'm all for it. If it's going to yep. make you a good, understanding, warm person, hey, go for it. But if it's going to make you feel different from others and if it's going to make you feel like you're better than others and your way or the highway or your religion or nothing and stuff it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think, I mean, we could dig into this, but I think we agree. So it wouldn't be a very interesting conversation. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we're also coming up to an hour and I promised I would be um, uh, sensitive of your time. So I guess um, I do have a question that I like to end these on, which is, do you have like a mantra or a guideline or a guiding principle that helps you when you're facing a difficult problem or when the going gets tough that, that helps you kind of keep you oriented in the direction you want to be? What would Haya do? <laughs> oh, goodness. I hope not. <laughs> no, no. I don't. No. Haya does not have a plan, Maker. <laughs> I don't think anyone should really have a plan because once you have a plan, it becomes quite inflexible, right? Yeah. I um I don't. No. When when things when things get dark, if I get to a very bad place mentally, you know, into depression or anxiety, mm-hmm. then it becomes it comes down to mum's old um advice of start in a corner and work yourself out. It's basically mm-hmm. break it down into smaller tasks, break it down into can I get out of the bed in out of bed in the morning? Take this next step in the words of Anna from Frozen. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's just you just make it very small. So if it's really in terms of, you know, if someone is struggling to that level that you can't if you're overwhelmed, then you just need to see what's next and then leave it at that and not do the big plan and not do the overall arching, overwhelming thing. But 
overall in life, when I'm in a good space and I'm trying to look at where my life is going, no, I don't really have a mantra or a plan or and I guess that's where being non-religious or non-spiritual even is a disadvantage. Well, maybe, but I mean, you just said uh, one baby step at a time or start in a corner. I feel like those are those are mantras, right? They're not. Uh, there's not a spiritual mantra, but if your coping mechanism is, oh godness, I can't, godness, oh goodness, I can't deal with this entire room at once. But what I do have is the ability to kind of go and stand in the corner and only see one little like angle of mess and I can tidy that up. Then I can take a tiny shuffle step back and tidy up that mess and take another tiny shuffle step back. So, I mean, it sounds like your mantra is one step at a time. Yeah. But only when things are hard. Right. When what is it when good, things are easy? Let's do everything at once. <laughs> Throw another shrimp on the Barbie. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to... Um... When things are good, I tend to take on too much. And then I get overwhelmed and then things get bad because I took on too much. <laughs> that was my big worry about this podcast, Maker. I was in such a bad place with my birthday and with you know feeling like I needed to figure out the mission of life before I could take any further step. And it's kind of like, I mean, that is a stupid thing to have on your critical path because I am not going to solve the meaning of life. But I, in a moment of, of, you know, temporal insanity, I took on this pod, I took on this podcast project and I gave it a whirl and I'm so glad I did because I get to have these conversations with you and with other humans I really care about. And m maybe that's my baby step, you know, in, in the kind of inconceivably big task of figuring out the meaning of life. Why was 40 so difficult for you? Uh... Good question. So the divorce happened. Um, I don't know if you heard, but there's some sort of pandemic going on, which has been kind of hard. Mm. And, you know, I have this moment where, you know, if I'm lucky, 40 is my halfway mark, right? If I live to 80, I'm a very lucky person. Mm. Um, people live for longer, for sure. But 80 seems like a fair, like given my current health, given my current appetite for life, 80 seems like a fair goal to aim for, which means that I'm exactly at the halfway mark. And I think I was just having a classical, you know, midlife crisis. Like, what have I done with myself? And do I need to course correct to make sure that my second half of my life feels like it was worthwhile or feels like it was on mission? And from there, I was like, what is my mission? I don't know. Who am I? I don't know. You know, where do ideas come from? I don't fucking know. And I think I feel like that exploration just became really urgent for me because I am facing some big decisions and I don't have the tool set I need to make the decisions. And, you know, if I make the wrong decision or I make a decision that's only 80% right, who gives a shit, right? It doesn't matter. What does matter, though, is that I want to feel like I've gone through the right process at least, where I don't wake up 10 years from now going, well, Haya, you had this midlife crisis at, at 40 and then you made a bunch of decisions that all came from a place of not knowing what the fuck you're doing. And now you're still where, where you were at 40. I feel like I am, I have more opportunities now than I ever did in my life. And I have less tools to make good decisions than I ever did in hmm. my life. Interesting. I don't see you that way at all. 
But obviously, like I said, I can only see myself out of my eyes and I can only see you through my eyes. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, and I mean, it's a pretty common, whenever I tell people this, it's a pretty common reaction that people go, wait a minute, that's how you see yourself? I don't see yourself that. But that's the thing, right? I live, I, I've done so many things. I've done so many weird things and I'm proud of a lot of them. But I also feel like a lot of the time I just don't have the directionality I wish I did. Hmm. Yeah, I that I get, and I can see that. The not having the tools you need, that's the one that I'm falling over right now. Because you've got so much life experience, you've got uh, a lot of negative life experience and a lot of setbacks that you've learned so much from because you're the kind of person that actually sits down and tries to see what you can learn from those horrible shitty situations well to me that's the integration piece yeah it is the it is the taking a nap and organizing my thoughts and i feel like that is I, of all the things i've gotten better at integration is super high up on the list of something i'm very proud of being able to integrate uh experiences and emotions difficult ones and easy ones i think is bordering on a superpower that's deep so what are you going to do with this superpower how are you going to make that into your legacy to make the world a better place? Well, I'm going to turn my superpower into brain soup. Um, <laughs> and, and that is what this podcast is. I feel like a lot of the time, me inviting my brain to reform neural pathways, whether that is through meditation or other types of integration, that is me saying, I am... I am I've been in data gathering mode. Now I'm in data integration mode. And this podcast and all the other things I'm doing, I'm writing a book, I'm doing all this other stuff, I think is the output phase. It's like when I have integrated the things I have learned, I will hopefully have grokked them well enough that I'm able to then disseminate that information again, or at least pieces of it that hopefully will be helpful to others. Mm -hmm. And when you say, how can you take this and turn it into your life's mission? I'm glad you asked that question. I think, I, I hope, that is exactly what I'm doing right now. Yeah. So you're taking data and turning it into information and then spewing it back out. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think it's the, you know, you read a book once and you, you understand what's in there. You read the book again and you, you integrate it into your lived experience. Like all the things that were in that book now become part of your landscape and you're able to do something with it. And the final piece is, 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 is to take your new landscape and re, repaint that for other people. It's like, hey, there was this book that gave me information. It overlaid on my landscape in this way. And now this is what the new landscape looks like. And I feel like the book, you know, it's been, it's been printed in 100,000 copies, right? You can't add anything to the book. What you can do is say, hey, the way this overlays my lived experience and my experience in general is... That piece has inherent value. Hmm. Well, and I'm I think that's what I'm trying slow, to do. I'm such a slow reader that I tend to not read books more than once because it just takes such a long time. But there is one book that I that I try to read every ten years or so because when I first read it, I was so impressed with it, and I thought this will be a book that really changes how you well. The book, as you say, never changes, but you as a person and where you are in life yeah. will really change depending on... You can uh, never step into the same book twice, Maker. That's right. 
So yeah, there is there is one book that I will read more than once, but other than that, I'm too slow a reader. I'm not I'm not a voracious voraciously. I don't read fast. <laughs> right. Well, and I think the flip side is also true, right? I I do read fast, but I I wasn't literally talking about books. I'm talking about TV shows, conversations, experiences, you know, one of your kids doing something dumb and you have to go, okay, well, that dumb thing happened, but how do I integrate that? How do I teach him and his sister why that was dumb and and how to hopefully course correct to not do that dumb thing again? And I think that's, I was using the example of a book, but I think anything can be the input. It could be a walk in the forest, could be shouting at a kid, whatever, right? But the 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 processing and then the output layer, I think, is really crucial. Mm. Yeah, you're right. And it's it's quite a. I think most people might do the processing, but never do the output. Um, sure. And I, think I mean, that- I'm the only one who's crazy enough to write a book about everything I do. Uh, but <laughs> well, I- that's where it comes back to the legacy, right? Like, what's the purpose of all the things that you do in life? Well, but the output could be much simpler, right? It doesn't have to be a book, or book, or a blog, blog post, or a or a painting. It could just be the next time you sit down with your little group of mums uh, over baby chinos and and coffee. Um, you might have an insight. You go, hey, you know that thing we talked about last week? I thought about it. And what I came to was X, Y, Z. Exactly. And and that piece, I mean, it. people make it into such a big deal, right? You don't have to read every book on X, then meditate on the top of a mountain for three years in silence, and then descend back down from the mountain and distill a lot into a haiku. If you can do that, great. No problem. But that's not why we're here. And that's not how humans operate. I feel like taking a small piece of information, integrating that small piece of information, and then helping other people, that, that is a layer we need to think about this. And if it happens to be a haiku, great, but that's that's not the, the, not the game we're in. No, and I guess that's where um, it becomes really difficult to, to share it more widely. So you tend to then share your thinking about the things that you're thinking about with your echo chamber. Yeah, and then it doesn't go more widely, and they go, "Yeah, that's great, and that's really interesting." And and have you ever thought about this aspect? And you go, "Oh," uh, and then you, then you get so wrapped up in everyone kind of thinking similarly, and you don't end up having these deep conversations. So, the most amazing conversations that you can have is with open souls that are willing to have difficult conversations about things yeah. that you deeply disagree on. I know some people like that. Yeah, they do exist. <laughs> they do exist quite a bit, but they they tend to be outside of your realm of of um, often they they are outside of your um, friendship group. And I'm not saying you in particular, but in life, because they are they can be difficult conversation, and they can actually make you need to reassess you and your I. And a lot of people don't want to do that. But you also told me a story recently, Maker, of um, you doing a presentation at work where you did something slightly unusual. <laughs> yeah. Can you can you tell that story in a, in a sh- short way? Because I, I think it really illustrates this point. In the shortest possible way, I was being a derp. 
So <laughs> okay, slightly longer. I was in. I was two weeks into a new job, and they asked me to do a presentation on the strategy for my job and my role for the next twelve months. And because I was two weeks in, I had no idea how to do that. So I created this slideshow with lots of memes and stupid gifs and stuff. And I rocked up to this strategy meeting with 13 people on my team and they all have super, super serious <laughs> presentations with Gantt charts. And, and you're just there with the gift APIs that keeps on giving. And, and I've, I've got <laughs> um, risk, risk everywhere. <laughs> risk is coming. Uh, it was just, it was terrible. And I was incredibly embarrassed. And afterwards I was told it was fantastic and um, I was given leave to do that again. So three months later, when we did a new strategy meeting, I did the exact same thing and I had three other people doing the same. So yay, I win. So, And I think it is such a beautiful example, right? You weren't sure how to do something. You did it the best way that Make It does with a little bit of whimsy and a little bit of humor. And you took a risk, right? The unrisky thing would be to put together a boring presentation. But you were like, no, I've got to make a point. I'm going to use my storytelling skills and my silly humor and do that and it and it paid off and i feel like you have and this is this is the the learning piece was you not knowing what to do and taking a stab the integration piece was you know the feedback you got and the output is the next meeting 3 months later three other people are using you know the gift that keeps on giving um <laughs> But, but I feel like that is a perfect example of making a small change in the world. And maybe, you know, if 10 years from now in the industry you are in, most people use presentations with some jokes in them in a very, what could be a very dry space. That is you single-handedly changing the course of history and changing the course of culture by just having a whimsical idea. And in the grand scheme of things, it was such a low risk thing to do. Because if it turned out that it's fallen flat, you would have been slightly embarrassed. The next time you do a presentation, you do it differently, and nobody would have remembered. Well, I don't know. Two weeks in, it could have been, you're fired. <laughs> okay, fine. Okay, fine. No, I, I think you're right. I think I am my father's daughter a little bit too much, where it's an opportunity to be uh, to make very poorly judged jokes, and I make them, and then kind of hope for the best. And in this this case, it paid off. It was an accepted uh, maker. You're weird, but um, the good kind of weird, and we're going to keep you. So, yeah, lucky me. S story of our lives. <laughs> hey, sis, uh, this was wonderful. I've kept you for way too long. Um, I may have to have you back for an additional episode. There was so much stuff we didn't talk about, but. Um, you said a bunch of stuff I've never thought about, about our relationship and about you know, what it has been to be make it in a, uh, in, a, in a world where my explosions go off on a regular basis. Yeah, I guess it's not a natural thing to talk about. It's not like you go through a very difficult phase in life, say you're divorced, and then you turn around and go, and how was that for you, Maker? Yeah, right. <laughs> Do you have any feedback for me uh, as I'm kind of <laughs> crying into my you know, vod vodka? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's natural to consider those things. Like it's natural to be empathetic and, and care about other people, but when you go through a lot of trauma, a lot of difficult times yourself, it's not a natural thing to to extend that empathy beyond mm -hmm. yourself, your I. 
and I don't I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to start worrying about how you and your life and your choices and your experiences might affect me because that's not something you need to have on your plate ever. Mm. I have always thought that you're there for me when I need you and whenever I whenever I have had very very difficult parts of my life you've been the one who always stood by me no questions asked mm-hmm. no matter how stupid or ill conceived or whatever it was you've been there and even when you have I mean nothing- I am no stranger to cheering on ill conceived ideas making that's basically <laughs> my meaning of life yeah we're the bad ideas bears um, <laughs> but I think even even when there has been nothing to say, you've been, you know, I remember you sitting next to me at a dinner table where everything was very horrible and tense and nobody was just speaking and you just put your head on my shoulder. And that meant so much to me at that time. Mm. But I never turned around and asked, so how was that experience for you, Haya? Because it's not a natural thing to do. And I don't want you to do that either. Like so, well, And it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, right? No. No, but there's been no one who's been as supportive of me as you have been throughout my life. So thank you for that. Mm. Well, I'm going to bask in that and uh, hit stop on this recording. All righty then. (laughs) Thank you, Megan. Thanks for having me. Thank you.